0: Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. On today's episode, I am joined as always by Greg. Hey, hey. And we are going to review Via Nebula. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing.
1: Which, interestingly enough, is Via Nebula. We actually just had some friends come over. We played a quick game, but we won't go into too much detail now, because obviously we're going to be talking about that quite a bit later on.
0: Yeah, and so this being October, we got in the holiday spirit, and we got to play Widow's Walk, the newest expansion and the only expansion for Betrayal at the House on the Hill.
1: We did, we did. That was really exciting. For those of you who've played Betrayal at the House on the Hill before, very much the same sort of thing. The expansion just adds some new rooms, new items, new events, and also new omens, Mm -hmm. which, because of the way the haunt works, each new omen is tied to a new haunt. So this Multiple has... new
0: haunts, actually, mm-hmm. if you think about it, because for every room that they could be triggered in.
1: That's true. That's true.
0: So there are a lot of new haunts because since they both added new rooms and new uh, omens, it really, the book is almost as thick as the original for the, for the new haunts. Oh, definitely. So there's a lot going on here. You get a lot of new content without a lot of new
1: rules. Right, and especially it's nice for people like me who, you know, I've played a few games of the base game, but I'm nowhere near enough to have unlocked or seen all of the haunts before. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you can, even while playing with the expansion, you can still end up getting one of the original haunts means that, you know, you don't feel locked out. It's not an either or situation. Oh, do we want to guarantee ourselves a widow's walk or do we want to stick to just the base game? You can play with all those components, have the full experience and still get, you know, the biggest selection possible.
0: Agreed. And the game itself, it went really well. We actually put all of the new items, omens and events on top so that we could experience them because I've played Betrayal quite a few times. And I just wanted to see what the new new things were. And we got to do that, and so that also triggered a new haunt. So, really cool, I think, in general. The haunt itself was, I don't think, one of my favorites. There, there are definitely a lot better haunts. But, I mean, not everyone's going to be amazing.
1: It was really in-depth, mechanically, was one of the things that struck me. And I, I almost wonder if, you know, that's by design. Obviously, you've got quite a lot of hype to live up to with Betrayal. And so you know, having to design more in-depth, more complex haunts. I wonder if that was a conscious decision or if that was just this particular haunt and the others are much more in line with the previous haunts. So I guess we'll just have to play more and find out.
0: Exactly. We'll have to check it out again. Pull it out on Halloween for our game group that day. So... It was a lot of fun. I still really enjoy the game. It's very good, the basics are still very solid, and I like how much more content has been added by, by the expansion. I believe that since every haunt is different and has slightly different mechanics, I don't think that the lack of new mechanics is really a problem. The one thing that I might say is the haunt that we had needed actual paper and people to write things down, which is a little bit annoying when you don't have paper or pens or pencils or anything like that for people to write things down with.
1: Right, yeah, and now that we know that that's a possibility, we'll obviously make sure to have pen and paper on hand, but, you know, going into it the first time, it was kind of like, oh, uh, hey, you over there, do you happen to have a pen that we can borrow? Yeah. That type of thing.
0: Exactly. So just a thing to keep your eye out on, you know, if you have a extra pen, a little tiny notepad or something like that, toss it in the game, there's enough room for it, and if you come up with this haunt, you'll be happy. And we'll see if it's necessary for any other haunts, too.
1: Hopefully we will. Yep. But so in addition to Widow's Walk and Betrayal more generally, we also got to play a quick game of Tiny Epic Western, yep. uh, which was great. We got to play with three players this time instead of two, mm-hmm. and it really made the game more contentious, I think. Yeah. You know, there's, It's much more crowded in the early game mm-hmm. before you have buildings that are available for actions. So I think you and I were talking about it afterwards, and we kind of theory crafted that if it were a four-player game it would be almost impossible to get through the first turn without at least one duel.
0: Yeah. And I think that it's really interesting. There's a lot more player interaction with, of course, more players. Most rounds, I think, had a duel, even if it failed. I think that's right. So there is definitely a lot more player interaction there. There's a lot more... God damn it, why'd you take that? I was going to take it. Or you better not take that, posturing <laughs> and saying like, you know, I'm going to win this hand even if you're there, so there you were better not take
1: that. There were certainly some threats and posturing and bravado going around the mm-hmm. table, which obviously very thematically appropriate.
0: Yeah, exactly. It, it really works for the game itself. I really enjoyed playing it. It was interesting that I didn't think about how complicated the game actually is because we tried to add someone in after one round that was started because one person had to leave. And when we tried to explain the rules, that person was just like, I'm not getting this. I'm going to sit out and just watch and see if I got it. And then that person at the end of the games was like, I still have no idea what the hell was going on.
1: I'm sure it didn't help that we started that game at like 1.30 at night. Yeah. So this was a little bit of a alchemist situation.
0: Definitely, definitely. And so at that time of night, it can be a little bit difficult to understand a new game. But I will say that Tiny Epic Western, just like Tiny Epic Galaxies and uh, the entire Tiny Epic game series, is definitely more than meets the eye. You get a small box with a much more in-depth game, and I really appreciate that
1: from them. Oh, absolutely. It's jam-packed.
0: In addition to just board games, we have both been playing in our RPGs lately.
1: We have. Yeah, we finally had a chance to get back to the table.
0: Yeah, so this is your second session, I believe. It was, yeah. Hitch. We
1: we were put on a brief hiatus while our GM was on vacation. So we'd been hoping to play every other week, but it's been, I think, a month since our previous session. But we, we were able to sit down for a second session. That was a lot of fun. The people are friends, more or less, from, from way back, so it was good to you know, sit down in a, a Skype chat with each other. We're playing remotely via Roll20. And just, you know, have some fun, have some laughs, but also advance the plot a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. And my group, we had actually two sessions a few weeks ago. We didn't get a session in last week, and we're not getting one in this week just because of people's commitments and that kind of stuff. Our last two sessions were a lot of fun. They definitely started pushing the story forward a bit i'm really looking forward to seeing what happens next we just found an artifact that we find is from an ancient civilization that was in that area and we have no idea how to activate it like i know some things about how to activate it but in general it opened something else that then is now going to be Something that we're exploring, and this was after a big fight that we had, where all of us are like almost dead, and hopefully not going to get attacked from underground in the fort, hopefully. <laughs> so it's it's been quite an interesting few sessions, and I'm really looking forward to going back to it. I am also actually going to have a session about the background of my character with the GM this week.
1: Oh, that's nice. Just like a one-on-one?
0: Yeah, just a one-on-one. Where I'm not sure if we're going to be doing all too much role playing or if it's going to be just a discussion but either way it gives me a chance to really develop my character's background i am only four pages into a backstory so
1: oh only four (laughs) pages
0: (laughs) well to put that in in perspective when i played star wars i had a 21 page backstory right
1: none of this is surprising to me or probably to anyone listening (laughs) at this point
0: yeah i I like my stories
1: and i mean more power to you
0: yeah it helps me actually role play the character
1: Right. And that's really what it's all about is, you know, these expository sessions are really about helping you and the GM figure out who this character is so that you can play them in a way that's much more satisfying to you. You have more fun as a player. The party has more fun because they get a more well-developed sense of who you Mm -hmm. are you know, as a character, but also as a player, because they can sense that you're having more fun. And I think it's really worthwhile to do, especially once you get a couple sessions in, because there's always the few kinks that you work out at first, Mm -hmm. but once you're over that hurdle, it can really make a big difference if you just take that little bit of extra time and communicate about, hey, you know, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. This is what my motivations are.
0: Exactly, and it's even more fun when you actually have to discover that on your own. Speaking of which, we have recently started... Preparing for Polaris RPG. So this is a system where the world pretty much is underwater now. Most of Earth, it is apocalyptic and everything like that. The surface is uninhabitable. It sounds like a really, really cool story of a system. Character creation is not easy.
1: It's very challenging. Preparing is exactly the right word with it. and I don't want to go into too much detail at this particular moment simply because this is part of a process that we're working on developing where we're going to be playing a new system with a handful of our friends, maybe four to six sessions, and then we're going to sit down and we're going to do a review of the system. We're going to talk about some of the experiences that we had. We're going to talk about what the system itself was like, uh, and we're hoping to bring that to development sometime you know, in the next couple of months, so yep. that should be exciting.
0: And that way, not only are you going to be able to hear our review, but you'll also be able to see us playing the game. And that will be on our YouTube channel, and the review is going to be, as always, here on Dragons of Mize Podcast.
1: Look out for it. Now it's time to part the fog to reveal our review of Via Nebula. Yep,
0: as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, we played this just recently, and so far it's
1: been quite a bit of fun it has we've had a chance to play this a few times now kind of come at it from a couple of different angles get a couple of different layouts we have played both the the basic and also the advanced side of the board Mm -hmm. so we've got a, a decent grasp on how things work and pretty much how they work is you've got resources on the field and you're trying to get those resources onto your building sites so that you can complete contracts to score points
0: that is the gist of the game the resources that you put on the board are always in certain set predefined places, but where each resource is, type of, so there are resource spots, but the type of resources that go there are random. And then you set up the board like that, everything else is covered by fog or other impenetrable hexes. First, I guess we should describe the board.
1: Right, that would probably be helpful.
0: So the board of Via Nebula is a hex board that has... few different types of tiles one meadows meadows at the beginning are all full of resources these can be exploited by the players in order to reveal them fully and use them for construction next you have the ruins ruins are the only places where you can actually build so these are the tiles that you will put your construction site and then you will build your buildings there third you have the fog. Now, the fog is what prevents you from pretty much connecting everything. It's where you have to reveal, just as any other kind of train network building game, you have to build your your network to go from point A to point B. This way you have to reveal the fog to go from point A to point B. So in the fog you also have the petrified forest. These take a little bit more, so two actions instead of one, in order to reveal as a meadow. And then you have the last type of tile, which is the obstacle. The obstacle is something that no one can ever cross. It just is there. It is in the way. And that's pretty much the map. Now, the things that you can do are based on pretty much two actions per turn. So one, place a meadow tile on any fog tile.
1: Right. And that doesn't necessarily have to be along a pre-described route. So you've obviously got, you know, you want to create coherent paths between your build site's and the resource pools that you're exploiting, but you don't necessarily have to build in a straight line or along the same straight line right away because you can always build a path first and then drop a building site. Order of operations changes depending on what you want to prioritize. Mm
0: -hmm. So you can put that meadow tile anywhere on the board that is just fog. The next action that you can do is put a meadow tile over a petrified forest. This, instead of taking one action, takes two. So your entire turn, to, uh, to pretty much connect wherever you're going. Third action that you could do is to create a build site. So this is interesting because depending on the number of players, the build sites are slightly different. When you have three to four players, you use the half tiles.
1: Yes, so you've got essentially a hex, and you've got a little token that represents your construction site, that takes up half of one hex. Mm -hmm. So you can claim an entire hex to yourself and make sure that all the routes flowing to there are controlled by you, but only if you're willing to commit two different construction sites. Whereas when you play with two-player, simply because there's fewer construction sites that are going to be going around over the course of the game, each construction site and then each completed building as well takes up an entire tile. So that's a little bit different from game to game. Once you've got construction sites down, one of the actions that you can do is to transfer a resource from an exploitation tile to a build site that you control. Resources can only be moved across a valid path of completely empty meadows. Mm -hmm. So you can't move through ruins, you can't move through fog, you can't move through impassable tiles, but you also can't move through meadows that aren't empty. So any meadow that still has a person's meeple on it Mm -hmm. for claiming any tile that still has resources on it because they haven't all been moved away, are completely impassable until those are gone. So there's a little bit of strategy there in terms of, okay, well, I'm going to strategically take resources from here or else wait until other people take resources from there, because once that's gone, it opens up a valid path to this other type of resource beyond that i need
0: exactly and so the action of exploitation itself is the last thing that you can do on your turn or second to last technically so the exploitation what that does is you take one of your two meeples when you're playing with three or four players you get three meeples when you're playing with two and you place that on a tile that shows a resource that then converts the little resource token into actual wooden resources That mechanic also gives you a certain number of victory points, depending on how many resources are put onto that tile. And then the resources are available for use by anyone. You then, as Greg said, bring those resources to your construction sites, of which you always have three available total. They can be in use or otherwise, but you're trying to bring the resources to them. The last thing that you can do is, of course, build. So, this is the main part of the game, where You have five contracts that you can have in total and whoever builds their fifth contract first begins the end game there are communal contracts which are put out so that everyone can see them on the board those can be taken by anyone who fulfills the necessary resources on a construction tile and then you also have two of your secret contracts or private contracts that you can use from your hand pretty much so those are ones that cannot be used by other people
1: Right. And so, since there are only four communal contracts laid out at any given time, especially since all the games that we've played have been with four players, that leads into a lot of racing to be the first one to get the required resources so that you can complete, can complete a particular building. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're competing for a building that costs uh, one lumber, one pig, and one wheat, you know, someone else can just as easily put a building slot on the ruin where you have your building slot, draw from all of the same resource exploitations that you've been drawing from, and get there sooner, because you did all the legwork. That's one of the things that's really surprisingly deep and surprisingly nuanced about the game. You know, when you go into it, you're thinking, oh, okay, I just need to take a resource from here, build the building, bada bing, bada boom. But then actually, you find out, okay, I've done all this labor. And this other person has had a strategy of capitalizing off of my exploitations, off of my explorations. Jacob's looking very guilty (laughs) right now, very guilty indeed, and they beat me to the buildings that I want to get to. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely one thing that you have to keep in the forefront of your mind when you're looking at these communal buildings. And it's one of the things that the secret buildings are a little bit of a safeguard towards. There's eight of them total because, you know, two each for four players, but they're also different types of buildings the Mm -hmm. the buildings that are available for secret contract are only available through secret contracts and Mm -hmm. none of them overlap so you've got things that say one other very important thing that we forgot to mention including giving victory points at the end of the game each completed contract allows you to use an ability immediately if -hmm. you so choose so these can be anything from place one of your meadow tiles onto any fog tile instantly and for free mm-hmm. to you know this card a uh, simple this card is worth bonus points at the end of the game to the secret contracts that I was about to mention of take any resource from the supply and put it onto one of your build sites yeah. so there's some strategy there you can pull off some sort of surprising come from behind moves if you have the right secret contracts mm-hmm. but it's a very delicate balance between Broadcasting what it is that you're going for and trying to make sure that no one else beats you to that.
0: Yeah. Hey, Greg, could
1: I just hoard all of the different resources on my building tile? That's a great question, Jacob. I don't know when we started doing that, but actually, no. So you've got anywhere between three and five resources on a particular exploitation, and you can move them one at a time onto your building sites, but. You don't want to necessarily move all of them onto a single building site just to clear the path, because once you either complete a contract using that building site, or at the end of the game, if you haven't managed to complete a contract there, you're going to lose one point for each resource that was left over after you complete a contract. So say again, for example, you've got a building that costs one stone, one pig, and one brick, and you have all three of those plus one additional lumber on your build site You build that building, complete the contract, and then that lumber goes to a special area where it's going to count against you for points, Mm -hmm. which is why to counterbalance that, you have other special things on contracts, some special abilities like caravan, actually say remove one of your resources from a building site you control or from your storage area. So you have to be really very careful and very precise if you don't want to risk taking negative points.
0: Yeah, and I think that that really brings out a big thing about this game, and just the balance that you're doing, because you're always trying to be exact. So you try to be as precise as possible with how many resources you take and move, which ones you're going for. And that's why having someone snipe the building that you're going for is even more painful, because you were going precisely for this one, you had almost all the resources, but now Maybe one of none of the other buildings that are shown or in your hand use one of those resources that's on your building tile. And that can also determine when you move certain resources to your buildings. So there's a lot of really cool nuance in the game where you have to really be careful about when you're moving, when you're revealing, when you're doing all these different things to pretty much prevent other people from screwing you in that way. And keeping your options open. And this is a game where 26 was the last winning point score, and I think the game that we played before that was like somewhere around 21 or 22.
1: Right, it's definitely a very low-scoring game in terms of just the raw numbers. There's obviously a lot of, you know, different elements. You're taking score from your completed contracts, you're taking score from your exploitation tiles that you've taken. There's lots of elements that go into Mm -hmm. that, but the actual number is just deceptively low. And
0: that negative one per resource that you had left over can really make a difference. Like, we saw that today where one of the other players in the game had she not made that mistake earlier in the game she would have won
1: right she would have been at 28 if it weren't for the negative two that she had to take because of the resources that she had left over from buildings
0: Mm -hmm. so it's definitely something that you can't overlook and i think that that gives this game a little bit of uniqueness a little bit of extra thought that you have to put into it where the rule set itself is pretty simple but it's one of those where the simple rule set can really give you a more complex and more interesting game
1: right we've been you know touching on it a lot but just in terms of the overall cohesiveness and how mm-hmm. these discrete elements of you know exploration of meadow tiles exploitation of resources how all of these particular game elements come together to form a cohesive whole i think is very successful in yeah. this game they they pull it off with a lot of surprising depth and surprising nuance, and you really have to take care with your strategy rather than simply try to bull rush your way through because you're gonna end up spending too many resources and taking negative points for that. You're gonna end up being beaten to buildings, being you know beaten to exploitations because you didn't consider all the possibilities.
0: Exactly, but no
1: game is perfect. That's right. One of the things you know that really came to my mind is All the games that we've played so far have been with four players, Mm -hmm. and no matter what number of players you have, be it two, three, or four, you're always going to have four communal contracts on the field, which means in a two-player game, you're going to have more or less elbow room, breathing room, to go for the contracts that you want. You might step on each other's toes sometimes, but in a four-player game, you're going to be constantly taking contracts from other people. You're going to have contracts that are being taken from you. So one of the things that I think would really benefit this game is a sort of scaling mechanic where you say, you know, you lay out a number of contracts equal to the number of players plus one. Mm -hmm. Because then, you know, it would result in a little bit tighter of a two-player game, but a little bit more breathable four-player game. And I think you would have probably a more consistent experience across the number of players.
0: Agreed. And one of the things that I noticed about the game that, I think could have been a lot better, is to do with the contracts themselves. First off, I think that there are not enough of these contracts. Uh, There are only those eight that are the secret contracts, and I think it would be a lot better if there were more of them, if you had maybe at least 12 to 14 of them, which can give a lot more variability, a lot more variety to playing the game. Same thing with the other contract. I think that the actual deck of contracts is very small for a game of this size. And it's going to take a little while, but I think it could affect the replayability. The biggest thing, though, for me is theme. So Agreed. First, Via Nebula, the name.
1: Everyone assumes it's a space game. I assumed it was a space game. Everyone that I've talked to is like, oh, that's the space game, right? And we're like, no, no. It's a fantasy game with pigs and funnily dressed characters. Yeah,
0: and I bet up up until now you may have still been thinking that this is a space game where you're taking something from, like, on some alien planet or something.
1: I don't know. We have said pigs and wheat kind of a lot in this review.
0: True, true. But still, I mean, it's, it's the kind of game where you have a really cute pig you have like these funny uh, caricatures of different kinds of traitors that you might see in an rpg or any fantasy setting and it just doesn't fit the name and that goes deeper into the contract i think that's the biggest culprit where these contracts are represented on the board by buildings that you put on the ruins so the contract can be anything from a priest that Greg built in this
1: last game I did, I built a priest
0: Yeah, he built a priest using resources
1: It took three whole... Re- like That was a very large priest
0: Yeah, I mean It just doesn't really work Thematically like, The art is cool, it looks nice But just change the priest to a cathedral Change like these different things Like the caravan to a merchant's house Or something like that Or, or a trading post because that would make sense when you're building it and you're putting down these really nicely made wooden pieces that look like castles or buildings and other things like that. You're putting them down on the table. You're not putting down like some large meeples or like some other generic tokens. You're you're making buildings. And so that I think really creates a bit of a confusion. You've probably heard throughout the review where we're like, Oh, it was a contra- and building contract. Sorry, I, you know, it, it. We keep mistaking the two of them because functionally you're putting down buildings, but they're contracts which have really weird ways of showing it. So
1: right, there's a little bit of a disconnect there that would be, in our estimation, obviously as non-game designers, mm-hmm. rather easy to solve. You know, just implement that consistency, and it would give it just that much more of a, a satisfying game feel. Exactly.
0: So, along those lines, what do you think of the game? What's your rating?
1: I like this game. I think for a lot of the reasons that we've stated, particularly, again, the theme that just doesn't have the staying power. I like playing it, I like looking at it, I think it's, it's cute and fun and whimsical, but at the end of the day, if I had to explain the game and the theme and what makes it interesting to people it doesn't have the staying power that some other games with a more cohesive theme have, and for that reason I'm going to go with a play it.
0: I'm also going to echo that play it. I did enjoy playing the game, it is uh, quite a bit of fun, a really light game that has deceptively deep strategic roots, and I do quite enjoy it, but at the same time there are definitely things that I can see issues with replayability, and that theme disconnect a little bit. It's not something that would prevent me from playing it, but just prevents me from saying that this is the best game that it could be.
1: Right. But don't take our word for it. Feel free to give it a shot, especially if you liked some other games of this particular flavor. Five Tribes is one where you've got pieces, tokens that you're going to interact with that are integral to your strategy that are on the board that you're doing your best to set up as best Mm -hmm. you can, but which other people can snipe there's a lot of those elements in this game.
0: Yeah. It's the same thing. It's you're trying to set yourself up without letting someone else use that that setup. And since everything is communal pretty much other than your construction spaces, it has a very similar feel to Five Tribes. Another thing that I will say is this is a pick up and deliver game. So, if you like pick up and deliver games, I would say something like Theme Rails to Riches. And you want a lot lighter games, so if you want someone uh, who is not really into those to play a pick-up-and-deliver game with you, this might be very much the kind of game that you want to pick up. Because it is definitely a lot lighter, it doesn't have that kind of thing, and it's also a different theme. So, if you like pick-up-and-deliver games of that type and want something lighter, I would recommend taking a look.
1: Well, there you have it. Our review of Via Nebula. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dragon's Demise. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel where this and other podcasts are available in video format. We hope to bring some other content to video soon, so be on the lookout for that. And join us next week when we'll be reviewing Betrayal at the House on the Hill and its expansion, Widow's Walk.